0: all right here. It's all working. Turn some lights down. Gosh, it's so much. Can you hear me? Am I on? Am I on? Okay. This is so much fun. Um, I know so many people here from so many different ways and connections um, that uh, there's a little bit of a, a reunion feel for me. Um, I'm thrilled that all the people who come to the author talks, you know, haven't been put off by the way I handle myself and they still want to hear me uh, do all this. and uh, Um, I know we have a number of people from the Jewish community who have come out, and I thank you all for all your support uh, and your interest in in this talk. Um, You know, a lot of thanks to Hagley for all the things they've done here. Um, And you know, Eric said, said some really good basic things about the staff support that I've gotten at Hagley over the years, which is extraordinary. Um, a lot of people in the library who I've interacted with for 20 years—I mean, here, 22 years—it's uh, a faculty here. It's really a faculty in, in talking to people, and I'll mention on the way in this book uh, at times collections that I've drawn from. Since you probably didn't think that Hadley was a place that had much on kosher food, I can surprise you about that. Um, I, I do want to single out um, my associate, Carol Lockman. Carol, are you still here? There she is. Okay, good. Carol decided to stay for the talk, you know. But like, we need to we need to clap. Carol 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 usually is, is like the person who like you know makes dinner and then like never sits down at the table, you know. You know people like that because they're busy getting everybody together and all that. And a lot of these events, you know, Carol has left by the time the event, event actually gets going. But uh, Carol preceded me at Hagley. She's been at Hagley for 25 years. Um, She put up with this young guy coming in and being, in a nominal sense, her boss, nominal, I assure you, is the word. Uh, And Carol, I mean, working with you has been amazing. We couldn't have done any of the stuff that Eric's talked about, about the business history conference and these events, uh, without Carol Lachman. Um, It's not just that she's organized these things. This is intellectual engagement and helping to think about speakers. Uh, Carol is a discerning judge of character. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and that and, and, and many of our conversations have, have ended up with saying, well, Carol, you're right, uh, I have to admit it. So Carol, thank you for, for so many years here and, and being here uh, and working with me. Uh, I also want to thank Hagley more generally as an institution though. Uh, we thank people, it's important, but there's something that needs to be said that I've been doing these things that Eric talked about, at Hagley as the place has changed quite a bit. In the time I've been at Hagley, there have been four different uh, directors. I've had several different people who I report to. Uh, and the course of that, and Eric was so kind in saying, I've been pretty productive here. You know, there's, I've had seven books come out in various shapes and forms, my name on them, all of them while I've been on, on the staff here. Uh, and I'm an administrator. You know, I show up at you know, 8.30 and I leave at 4.30, sometimes 4.45 if they don't throw me out the window for you know, keeping the place open late. Um, and it's been a policy of Hagley to support me as an academic uh, throughout that. And that's not always the case when you're, you know, when, you're, when you're an administrator and you've got budgets and you've got events to run. You don't always get that kind um, of support. Um, and Eric has supported me. Uh, the current director of cole supported me. Uh, it's time for research. It's time to be away, kind of do the kind of oddball things that academics do in our very weird little tribe. Uh, and which normal people like, what? Why are you doing it that? Well, that's what you got to do there. Um, but there's also something a little more specific I want to mention about Hagley that relates, relates to this book. Um, Hagley was very important for me um, 2008, 2009, 2010, where not, where not only was I working on this book, but my parents were in the process of dying. Um, this is difficult. We've all been through this, probably. Uh, if we haven't, you will. It's one. Of, it's a fact, sort of the human condition. Um, and if you read Kosher, you will say, you'll you'll learn how much this uh, sort of confluence of events affected the book and affected my thinking about the book. Um, because I say a number of places that what happens when your parents see that the end is coming uh, is they want to talk to you. You know, they 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 feel that their connection with you is you know is going to go away and they want to hang on to it as much as they can. And one way they could connect with me was by t- talking to me about their parents and about their encounters with kosher food and to engage with me intellectually in this project that I was, I was working on. Um, this was not something I had anticipated uh, when I started writing this book. I mean, I am an academic. We do research, we take notes, we, we write from sources. Um, but these, these stories were relevant. I mean, my parents were smart people. My father, had a law degree, uh, worked in the entertainment industry. My mother, philosophy professor, and a law degree. And so they had something to say about that, and they, and they engaged with me about this quite, um, quite significantly. Um, my father, somewhat less so, since he lived in Santa Fe, and I didn't see him that often. But my mother lived in New York City. Um, come on. There we go. It's my mother uh, and my little girl, Lucy, who's a little bit older. This is Thanksgiving, 2010. Uh, She lived on the Upper West Side. And a lot of my research was in New York City. And Hagley, this is where Hagley has to get credit, a lot of times what I did is I went to New York City on day trips, able to take days off in a category we have here called professional development. It wasn't vacation, it was part of doing this work. And I took day trips because I have a family. I have children at home, as you can see and it's a lot easier if you can come back at night. But I would go up in the morning, I'd spend time at the Center for Jewish History, the New York Public Library, Yeshiva University, doing research, and then I'd go visit my mother. And i talk about this a bit in the book, and and we'd we'd talk about what i research, she'd tell stories, we'd have uh, food from Fana Shapiro's Deli on 72nd Street, which has been there for for ages. Um, And this became really 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, Um, It was sort of a new relationship we had in a way. These visits, all these kinds of visits, facilitated by the kinds of employment rules Hagley had and their support for us. Uh, And it was very, very special. Uh, This picture, uh, Thanksgiving 2010, um, this is really the last time uh, I was able to fully socialize with her. Uh, She suffered from COPD, which is a pulmonary disorder, emphysema. Uh, part of that condition is you periodically get infections and you have attacks. Uh, right after Thanksgiving, she had one of those. It landed her in the hospital. And when we got her out, it was really so she could die at home. And she died six weeks after this picture was taken. So um, there are ways in which this book is personal in a way that's very, very unusual. Uh, it's not a personal history. I don't pretend to be interesting enough to write a book about myself. I. Sorry, I didn't climb Everest or do anything like that, you know. Um, but it is but it is tied with some family stories. And so the way the book actually happened um, was, in fact, at this apartment, one dark and stormy night uh, in New York. Uh, truly was a dark and stormy night. and That's actually important to this. Um, and it revolved around Uncle Stu. Um, some of you... Um, this Uncle Stu there is, oh, that's not the one I wanted. Where's the one I wanted? Hmm. Well, we'll work with this one with Uncle Stu here. Uh, we'll come back to Stu. Uncle Stu is the guy on the, on the right uh, in this picture. Uh, now, Uncle Stu came to this party, and I got to tell you a little bit about Uncle Stu, to, to this, this, this scenario. Uh, this party was on Christmas Day, uh, 2005. My mother was the, the chair of the board of the Metropolitan Center for Mental Health. It's connected to to that uh, clinic's sort of a holiday party. Uh, and um, Stu came. He always came to our parties. And as I, the reason Stu was so special, he's her brother, is that the man in the next to him uh, is a man named David Horowitz, who is my father. Uh, these two met at Columbia in the. In the mid 1940s, a university, they met. They met in, in, as, un, as uh, undergraduates, and they went to law school together. They became fast friends, and so Stu invited his friend David to the parents' house, his parents' house in Lake Placid, New York, where my father, 19 at the time, met my mother, who was 15, and you know, one thing led to another, and they became married about four years later. So that's why I'm here, and and. Uh, <laughs> That's why I say in the book, it's Uncle Stu who made this all possible, not just what I'm about to tell you, but also the fact that he brought my parents together. And this is the, uh, this is the family house a few, a few years later. Um, oh, you know what? These work better when you turn them on. There we go. There we go. Ah, it's wonderful. This, of course, uh, is my father, my mother, my mother's parents, Charlie and Bertie. And this, of course, this little guy is me, about uh, one or two years old. Um, now, Stu, though, this is why Stu was so important to us. But this night was a very difficult night for, uh, for Stu. Uh, his wife, Doris, uh, had Parkinson's disease and had it for about 20 years. And if you know anything about Parkinson's disease, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible, wasting disease. And she became progressively weaker and weaker over the course of that time. Uh, the time this evening, she was confined to a wheelchair. She really could not move by herself. Stu himself was fairly late stage cancer at this point. He had cancer in his bones. Uh, their attendant was not with them because it was Christmas and they had let her off so she could go and spend Christmas with her family. So, to get uh, Stu, so for, to come to this party, Stu had to wheel doors in a wheelchair about a mile through the upper west side through a drenching rain, upper 30s temperatures, a dark and stormy night. And he had to cover her with garbage bags and raincoats to bring her to my mother's apartment. Um, and this, of course, we, you know, we realize when he comes in the door that this is what, what he's done. So we make him comfortable. We make Doris comfortable. And Stu doesn't complain a bit. He refuses to talk about his health. He and I sit and we drink Slivovitz and whiskey. Uh, Stu could drink. Um, and we talked about this and that. He wanted to know about the kids. He wanted to know about my work at Hagley. You know, what, you know, what did I think of this? What did I think of that? He wanted to tell me about the Spanish lessons he was taking. He didn't want to talk about uh, his condition. Um, and when it came time to leave, on an impulse I gave him the book Putting Meat at the American Table that Eric was so kind to mention that it had just come out. I had one copy. Literally, I just had one copy. And Stu was leaving, and I thought, I'm going to give Stu a copy, just you know, because I want to give Stu a copy. Um, he went home and read it immediately, called my mother the next day or the day after, and you know, he said, well, you know, it's a nice book. You know, It's very interesting. But why didn't Roger write about kosher meat? And he said to his mother, ask Roger to call me about it. So she calls me up a couple of days later, and, I, and she tells me the story, I said, okay, I'll call Stu. I didn't call him right away, and he died. He died, I think, on the 29th of December, four days after that, um, after that party. Um, and I couldn't talk to him about it. But it, you know, you th- when you think about the question, this is what got me in this book, but the question was very profound. Stu was a very, very smart man. And he was asking two questions in one with a question he asked my mother. One part of that question was how could you write a book about, about meat in America and not talk about kosher meat? How is it possible that Jews and this Jewish dietary practice didn't rise to attention in, in this kind of a story? A very, I think a very, very big question. And then there was a personal question in there, which was why didn't you, Roger, write about kosher meat? You grew up in an observant household. You're Jewish. Why didn't you look at this? Fair point, Stu. Fair point. And that was your uncle talking. So, you know, that's what got me out of this book. It's funny, you know, when, you, when, when books, you, you start books for all sorts of funny reasons. And, um, you know, the next book, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but one day I'll know what it was. When I got that question from Stu, I knew this was the book. This was the book that I wanted to write. And I expanded it to look at kosher food more generally. And in the court, in writing the book and, and thinking about it, it also made me think a lot about being Jewish about how accepted or not Jews are in this world, where we are really the longest living minority in this, you know, in the history of humankind. You know, for good or for bad, we've been around for a long time, and we've been a small minority for a long time, and we've survived, which is, which is something to, to be proud of. And also, if food is a measure of acceptance, if it's one of the ways we judge acceptance, how have we done? How have we done for our acceptance in a world in which we are a minority? So that was the question. And, I, and, I, and the first chapter of the book is called Uncle Stu's Question, because that is genuinely how it started. And not as a sentimental question, but as a significant intellectual historical question, how, what's happened with modern kosher food. Now, kosher is, of course, is, is a religious category. And I didn't know anything about kosher law. I mean, that was not something that I had studied. So I had to figure this out. And then I had to figure out how to talk about it in a book in a way which didn't put you to sleep which kosher law can do. I assure you, you can easily do that. Um, And so I I, I went back to, and and so in in talking about this with my mother and then separately with my father, because they were divorced a long time, they both told me about this incident involving um, our family, involving Yom Kippur. This would be a family dinner. This is not the dinner where this this takes place, but this is a family dinner. These are my parents, right there, um, 55. This is Stu. This is Doris, I mentioned. Uh, this is my Uncle Ernie, Stu's brother. These are my, fa- these are my father's mother, his, my father's father, and my mother's parents, who you, you met before. And what happened was this, the story was this, that there was a huge fight after Yom Kippur between my grandparents. Now, Yom Kippur, as you may or may not know, you fast in Yom Kippur, and it's a tradition among Jews that you fast, and when you break the fast, you really break the fast. You know, you have a big meal. And Charlie and, 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 and Bertie, uh, a big apartment in Central Park West. They had everybody over there. So we all went over there. They all went over. This is before I was born, so I wasn't there. And they had cocktails. They had snacks. It's time for dinner. They go in to sit down at the table, this, this group here. Um, and there's a confrontation because there's a sturgeon on the table. Charlie and Bertie were serving sturgeon for the first course. Now, So what? So what if the sturgeon? Well, this is Abe and Florence, my father's parents. They're Orthodox Jews. And for Orthodox Jews, sturgeon is definitively not kosher. It's sort of like putting a pig on the table. It's that serious. It's not an acceptable food for Jews to eat. Uh, And my mother's parents, uh, Charlie and and Bertie, um, conservative Jews. And the conservative tradition of Judaism accepted sturgeon as kosher. Uh, and so this argument breaks out. You can imagine this. People have had a few drinks. They're hungry. There's food on the table. And the, and the, and the adults are having this big argument. My mother and father are probably like, you know, embarrassed as can be about, about this breaking out. So finally, Charlie says, forget it. OK, Abe. And they, they take the fish off the table, and they all sit down. They just kind of give in, and they, and they move on. Um, because in fact, this argument has been going on for 1,000 years in Judaism. Now, now, what's what is this about? It's about it's, it's, it's a very interesting way of understanding this. I mean, I mean, here's a sturgeon. Okay, this is this is this is the genuine thing. And the issue are these things, scales. One of the definitions of what's an acceptable fish in the Torah, in the Five Books of Moses, is that for a fish to be acceptable, it has to have fins and scales. Now, fins, it's pretty clear what fins are, but scales, what are scales? You know, and sometimes, you know, fish don't have scales when they're born, but they get them later. Sometimes you catch fish, the scales fall off. You know, what's a scale? And what does it take to find a scale? So this then becomes discussed in the Talmud, which is redacted in the, in the sixth century. The Talmud is five million words, so it's a, big, it's a big book. And then it's discussed further in Jewish law. It's discussed by Maimonides in the Mishneh Torah, the 12th century. It's discussed in the, in the Shulchan Aruch, The 16th century of Joseph Caro, and there's a lot of commentary in between by these rabbis trying to figure out, among other things, is the sturgeon kosher. And it turns on this on a second issue that these scales, it turns out, you can't just scrape them off like you can a regular fish. You have to; um, they're so deeply embedded in the flesh that you have to break the flesh in order to get them out. You have to cut them out. And that violates other pieces of kosher law, which says the animal cannot be damaged at the time that it's, it's butchered. Um, and were they really scales? Today, actually, this is an interesting point. Today, we know that, in fact, the scales on a sturgeon are quite different chemically than the scales on conventional fish. Because the sturgeon's an ancient fish. It's a different kind of lineage. There is a reason that there is a difference. But what to make of this reason? And to this day, this division exists over to what to make of the sturgeon. But what does this story tell you? This is what I draw, draw out in the book. It tells you something about the nature of Judaism, that Judaism is a religion of practice. And kosher law ultimately is about applying some principles of religion to the real world around us. And that real world is a complicated place, especially for Jews, because Jews move around a lot. Sometimes because we decide to, sometimes because we are told to get out and hit the road and go find someplace else to live, part of the Jewish condition, if you will. Um, so Judaism is trying to figure out how to apply you know, the Torah, the Talmud, into these other, in these other areas. The debate about the sturgeon is a real debate about a fish. And there's a famous ruling in the 18th century, which is about rabbis are sitting there looking at the sturgeon, trying to take the scales off. It's a practical kind of thing. It's not a religion of dogma that I think Christianity is much more. It's about, how do we understand the world around it? and So this means that by its nature, there's going to be debates, because the world changes. New things happen. And how do we apply what we learned about in the past to what's going on in the present? Now, some people know all this, but I want to say something quickly about what kosher means. Kosher is all about separation, about what's acceptable and what's it not. And this is a nice, clean line. And here we have something that's permitted and things that are permitted. And this is probably not a surprise um, to most of you. Uh, There's also a rule of separation about milk and meat. You're not supposed to have these the same meal or some period between them. It's about separation. Uh, and it all looks, this looks kind of nice. There's a nice line there. And this and that, OK. You can, you, can, you can have eagles and hawks. You can have chicken. OK, that sounds very clear. But what happens in the 20th century? when we have industrial food. What do you make of this? Okay? Aunt Jemima showing extraordinary linguistic abilities. Um, really a, something you never knew about 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 the the, uh, the the trademark you know basically saying you know you should eat this. This is this is advertised to house to, to Jewish housewives. Where is Aunt Jemima on this chart? It's not there. Or try this one Pillsbury flour. This is from a Yiddish newspaper. It says, among other claims, that it can be used to make, quote, refreshing challah sponge cake and cookies for the Sabbath. Pretty important moment. Well, again, you know, where is it? You know, on that on that chart. How to understand if this is kosher? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. When we start having industrial brand name food. We're really talking the teens and the 20s when it comes in. Widespread in the 30s, it creates an enormous challenge for kosher law. Because all this stuff in the, in the, in the Talmud, the Shulchan Aruch, and all that didn't have to worry about Aunt Jemima flower. Didn't have to worry about ingredients, preservatives, flavorings, colors. None of that stuff is there. And so the rabbis have to struggle with this kosher law and apply it to the world around them. Um, and of course disagreements as to how they how to do this. Alright, so so what happens? How does this work itself out? Well, to start telling this story, I get I went back to me and to my family. Uh, to some, this is me, fourth grade. Uh, yeah, handsome guy. I know, I know, I know. Uh, I, I was was not I but anyway. Um, and at this time, fourth grade, okay, this is you know, this is um, you know 19, you know, early nineteen sixties. Um, we Coke for us, Coca-Cola was something that we always had at Passover. It was special. Coke, we had Coca-Cola at Shabbat dinners at Grandpa Charlie's. But it was not in the refrigerator otherwise. I mean, nowadays it's different. But then it was water and milk and juice. And then Coke was a special occasion. And why was Coke acceptable? This is a big deal, those occasions. What made Coke kosher? Um, And I discovered that this is a issue that goes back to the 1920s and the 1930s. Coca-Cola advertises widely to Jews. This is, this is, of course, an ad in the Yiddish papers, uh, I think uh, 1921. I've had it translated. The text is completely innocuous. It's, all, it's just a standard Coke ad translated into Hebrew. There's no special anything. But obviously, they're reaching out for Jews. And it turns out, in the 20s, this practice of serving Coca-Cola to the children for Passover comes in. It becomes widespread. It's prohibition, after all. So anyway, so getting, the, getting wine is is difficult. So the rabbis start discussing, is Coke acceptable? I mean, I mean this is Passover. This is, this is Sabbath. Is it OK for Jews to have? And the key person that gets drawn into this story um, is a man called uh, Rabbi Tobias Geffen, um, who some of you may know as a grandfather of a man named David Geffen, former rabbi at Beth Shalom, who has also been a great help to me in all this, in all this research. Um, now Rabbi Geffen, this Rabbi Geffen, Tobias, he lives in Atlanta. And he gets letters from rabbis because there's a long tradition in Judaism that the rabbi in the town where the product is made is the person who can tell you whether it's kosher or not. The rabbi, it's kind of accepted that the kind of authority is there. So he gets these, these letters. And you know, Rabbi Geffen is not a prominent rabbi at the time. He's, he's a congregational rabbi. You know, he's, worried about all, he's worried about Jewish education. That's one of his main things he's worried about. Uh, he's also worried about women whose husbands have deserted them. How, what is he going to do? How are they going to get a divorce? Which is very complicated in Jewish law. He has other kinds of cases where he intervenes. That's his life. And he has a diary, which he keeps, in which he doesn't mention anything about the Coca-Cola issue, because he gets drawn into this. He gets into this, he goes, OK, I'm, I'm, uh, here I am in Atlanta. I'm going to figure this out. So he knows the people of Coca-Cola, because his children have gone to Emory University. Through that, he's made some connections there. So he goes to them and he says, look, you know, I want to figure out if Coke is is kosher. They say, well, that's interesting. And he says, and to do that, you need to tell me about everything which is in it. Everything that's in it. And and they do. They do. They tell him everything, including the famous secret ingredient. No, it's not cocaine. I'm not talking about that. This is the flavoring that they don't want, that they still keep secret. And he has to look at everything. He promises complete confidentiality. He signs an agreement. And Coke trusts him. To figure this out, and I think in part there's a whole story about his personal relationship with, with them that 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 um, is in part of the story here. But to do, so then he gets the ingredient list, and then he wants to test Coke, and he goes to the state chemist in Georgia, and he has a chemist test Coca-Cola, and I think he's then he's the first rabbi to bring science into the story. And he has to say to tell the Coke, well, there's a problem, two problems actually. One problem's not that difficult. Uh, The problem is that the first problem is that Coke uses alcohol in the manufacturing process, alcohol from grain sources, which is not, not kosher, but it's not acceptable for Passover because of the special rules for Passover. It's not a big problem because it's easy to get alcohol from other sources. It doesn't have to be from grains, and he gets it from molasses. Okay, that's soft. The bigger problem is an ingredient called glycerin. Have people here heard of glycerin? Yeah, people are very good. Well, I had never heard of glycerin. I had never heard of glycerin before I came across this. So what is this thing called glycerin? Fortunately, I work at Hagley. And Hagley has that, that kind of research material, especially from the Litchfield collection on fatty acids. That's a wonderful collection of um, fats and a wonderful collection of books in which I figured out what glycerin was. Well, glycerin is a derivative of the soap manufacturing process. Soap relies upon animal fats. And you can be sure that in the 1920s, 1930s, those animal fats were principally non-kosher animals. So what to make of the glycerin that's in Coca-Cola? It's not an animal fat, but it's derived from animal fats. And so Geffen is clear. It's not kosher. If the source is not kosher, then the glycerin is not kosher. Sorry, Coke, you've got a non-kosher ingredient going into your Coca-Cola. But there's another issue here. Uh, more complicated issue, but a very important issue. That's that it, it, Judaism coming out of, of the early modern era had some exceptions in it, some leniencies. And one of them is this wonderful concept called bitu, nullification. Or more commonly, bitul bishishim, nullification in the 160th. And the idea is this, that if you have a product which is basically kosher, and by accident something non-kosher drops into it, and it's less than one sixtieth of the total volume, it's OK. It's OK. It's still kosher. And so and the classic example I would give is, you, if you remember, one of, the, one of the separation rules is you can't have milk and meat in the same dish. The classic example that, that's given is you know, a woman is making a big beef stew and accidentally drops a little bit of butter in the beef stew. Is do you have to throw out the whole beef stew? Because you violate this rule of separation of milk and meat if this butter, if it's an accident, and the butter is less than 1 60th of the, of the stew, which it surely is, it's okay. It's okay. It's nullified by the kosher part. Now, this is, an, this is, this is you know, a case where you can imagine this happening, and the woman goes to the rabbi of the town, and the rabbi goes, oh, it's okay. You don't have to throw the beef stew out, because he knows what a hardship it would be to throw out the beef stew. Now, so Gaffin to say, well, is glycerin nullified? Glycerin is 0.01% of the volume of Coke, a very small amount. Under this principle of nullification, maybe you don't have to worry about it. So he looks at it, he reads this, and he says, sorry, Coke. It doesn't work. It's not a way around it. And I said, the reason is because the glycerin is essential to the manufacturing of Coca-Cola. It's not a mistake. You didn't drop it in there by mistake. It's integral to the manufacturing. It's integrally part of it. Therefore, it doesn't fit. It's not an accident. It's an essential chemical, and it is. But what I can tell you what the glycerin is doing in Coke and in all sorts of soft drinks, it's diffusing the flavors through the liquid. I mean, the big problem with dropping a flavor in cold liquid is sort of like dropping sugar in your, in your iced tea, right? The sugar just drops to the bottom. It doesn't dissolve. Glycerin has this wonderful property that that flavor is sent throughout the liquid. And so you have glycerin in there, simply to make sure that whatever your secret flavors are and ingredients are, it's consistent throughout the Coca-Cola. You can see why it's essential. Because if you take that glycerin out, you're not going to have Coke tasting the way way it does. So no exception. Sorry, Coke. You're not kosher. Now, doing this, Geffen is doing some very important things. I think these are very important precedents. And uh, I'm not sure the. Geffen family realized how significant this was. One thing he's doing is he's integrating science into kosher law. This is something new. He's going to the state chemist. He's looking at chemistry manuals. He's learning about science and saying, that if you want to, if you want to apply kosher law in a modern world, you have to know about science, and you have to know about chemistry. This is new. This is not something widely accepted at the time by his, by his colleagues. Um, he also creates a kosher headache for manufacturers. Because the implication of this and the application of it is that for a product to be kosher, everything in it has to be kosher. There's no roundabout nullification rule. And for things in it to be kosher, their source all has to be kosher, all flavoring, all preservatives, everything has to be kosher. And that's what it takes, he says, to have this law of separation, you know, to apply you know, this stuff to these products right here. Coca-Cola at all. That's what you have to do. But Geffen has something else which is a great precedent. He helps figure a way out for Coca-Cola. He says, well, the problem isn't glycerin per se. It's the source that glycerin comes from. If you can find glycerin from a kosher source, you're good. You can turn this thing and make this kosher. Uh, Fortunately, there were shortenings available from uh, vegetable sources at the time. A wonderful shortening called Crisco which was widely popular. Crisco is made by Procter and Gamble. And so happened that Procter and Gamble is a company supplying Coke with their glycerin from meat sources. So Coke goes to Procter and Gamble. And I'm sure even then, when Coke talked, Procter and Gamble listened. And they go and they explain the situation to them. And Procter and Gamble is probably like, sure, if you are pay for it, fine. And so they say we can make glycerin from cottonseed oil. And they set up their factory to do this. Uh, Again, I used the Hagley book to figure out how this actually would would look like. Uh, Geffen inspects it. Bingo. You've got kosher glycerin from vegetable sources. So Geffen gets Coke to substitute the kosher glycerin, vegetable glycerin, and substitute the the alcohol that's from non-grain source. And so he's able to do this. He's able to put a signature on a bottle cap of Coca-Cola saying it's kosher for Passover, 1935. Now, this is pretty amazing and we can we can ask questions about. it, But this is this is here. This is the first iconic product in America to go kosher. And it establishes a relationship which is developed for much for and you know, really a pattern that comes out much further on. One is this relationship of trust between the food companies and the rabbis. You think about it, Geffen has told everything and he never reveals it to a soul, not a soul. Never tells his children about it, he never writes it down. It's a, it's a secret, it's part of the arrangement. And he also helps Coke figure out what it takes to be kosher. He just doesn't go, sorry, uh-uh, forget it. You know, and all you Jews, we Coke, you're bad people. No, he's trying to figure a way out of a dilemma. How can we make it possible for these iconic products, which Jews wanted to consume, to make it possible to fit within of their religious requirement? Now, this is 1935. And I, have to, I don't want you to misunderstand and think that everything is going this way in 1935. It's decades before this, this changes. The um, 1940s, 1950s, the way most Jews are getting kosher food are from food companies that are Jewish to begin with. Um, and this is an issue because there's Coke. There's a few other products there, but most of the products are from companies like Manischewitz. Um, this is a wonderful ad from The New York Times. Um, but what's fascinating here is that It's all about the name and the reputation. There's no rabbinic stamp on here. There's no Hebrew lettering. There's nothing like that. What Jews trusted for their kosher food was not so much in generally that the heksher, that the psycher, the rabbi, but that these were from reputable food companies. Or from Okesh, similar company. Uh, This is Molly Picon. And again, Passover, Jesus says, the company asserts it's kosher foods. Um, This is about early 1960s. and so kosher food companies are trying, are trying to figure out, well, do we do the rabbis, to be honest? So Rokeish, this is another Hagley story. Rokesh goes to Ernest Dichter, uh, one of the great market researchers whose collection we have here, and says, what do we need to do to modernize, be competitive in the food industry? Do we need to have a, a rabbinic label on our packaging? And Roke- Dichter says, no, you don't need to worry about that. It's in our, it's in our archives here. Um, so this is what's the. the period after Coke, as the Orthodox Union and other companies are trying to move in there. Uh, now, of course, you probably know the best product from that era, uh, Manischewitz wine, um, Sacramento grapevine. Uh, all right, who has not tasted Manischewitz? <laughs> Anybody here? <laughs> No, no, all right, all right, we all, we all okay, we, we know what we're talking about here, and Manischewitz is, is, is part of this time where you trust a product because it's Manischewitz, it's from a, a food company, and also, let's just say this, the, the biblical symbi- symbolism is pretty strong here, rabbi, wine, a lot of Hebrew on the cover, wine like Mother used to make, which is, that's an interesting story uh, right there, um. <laughs> What's interesting about Manischewitz wine, though, and I, I go on about this, I have a chapter of the book about this, is this becomes the first crossover kosher product in the 1950s because it develops a huge demand among African-American consumers. That's a, it's a fascinating story. And if any of you want to have some fun about this and you know how to access YouTube, enter Sammy Davis Manischewitz <laughs> in YouTube. And you'll discover that Sammy Davis Jr. was the front man for Manischewitz in the 1960s. So Manischewitz. So this is an era where you, these, are, these are kosher probably. I mean, I mean you know, look. I mean, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, borscht kind of doesn't doesn't make it, doesn't cross over. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm not sure that's a well. I'm just, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid a judgment about that. But Manischewitz. Well, maybe it's good it passes over. I'm not sure. Uh, but Manischewitz is, the, is a big hit from that time. Um, so you have an era where you're having, you know, this Coke has become certified, you have the Jewish products there, and you still have this tension over how to resolve this issue of turning products kosher. Um, now, what happens beginning really in the 40s, 50s, 60s is a new way of dealing with this problem uh, comes, emerges. And that's called kosher certification. And to tell you about this, I have to introduce another person, Abraham Goldstein, this man uh, seated here. Um, who I'll take some credit for discovering in the the records of the New York Public Library. Uh, Now, what's significant about Goldstein is that he was a chemist. He was not a rabbi. Uh, He actually manufactured soap and products from soap in New York City in the teens and and the 20s. German-trained chemist, okay, migration in the the 1890s. So he he knows science, he knows chemistry, and he knows what's going into these products. And he starts a journal, 1935, called the Kosher Food Guide, in which he's telling the rabbis, you need to learn science, because you don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know how to figure out what's in these products. Um, and one thing he does in his using the Kosher Food Guide is he says, you've got to stop all these leniencies, all these little exceptions, you know, nullification, and, there, and there's others. You know, It was OK if it's in the shtetl, and you're trying to solve a problem. And you can't afford to throw out you know, the, the chicken soup or, or the beef stew. But these industrial food companies, they're slipping all sorts of stuff into your food. And you can't let that go because you're going to lose that separation that's in the Torah that you're supposed to follow as a Jew. Um, He has many issues that he fights about. But the one that he's most prominent about is the use of gelatin and whether gelatin is a kosher product. Um, Now, I think everybody here knows what gelatin is and where it comes from, uh, the bones and hides of animals. Um, And of course, you know, when you're doing that and you're a manufacturer, you're not worried about whether those animals are kosher or not. So a lot of the gelatin, all the gelatin's coming out is predominantly non-kosher animals. And gelatin is all through the food supply. I mean, especially 30s, 40s, 50s, a little bit less so now, but it's a very important ingredient uh, in food. So if you wanted ice cream, if you wanted cake, if you wanted lots of other things, you had gelatin in there. And the Orthodox rabbis at the time accepted gelatin as kosher. Gelatin from non-kosher sources as kosher. Uh, they did that under one of the leniencies that, that stems from the early modern era called panem chadashas, or devar Hadash. And the basic idea is that if a product was transformed completely from what it originated as, it lost any sort of prohibition. So gelatin is a nice, clean, white powder. It doesn't look like hides and bones. So if it's transformed so dramatically, it loses the prohibition. It's no longer drawn from non-kosher cattle or from pigs. It's something different, a different face. And and what it's drawn from is a few products where they have to figure this out in the 17th and 18th century, which they say the transformation, natural transformation, means you don't have to worry about it. Now it's being applied to a product which is all through the food system. Abraham Goldstein is on the case about it he's livid about it he's shouting about it he gets nowhere he gets nowhere he loses 1944 he passes his way his son George continues on and they they're they're losing in this in this argument there but then something happens uh, and that's something it's a weird thing but it's true is cello cello becomes kosher it's declared kosher by leaders of the Agadath Harbanim the or you know the most prominent Uh, Organization of European born rabbis in 1950. And they say Jell O is now kosher for all Israel to eat. Well, that's a sensation. I mean, Jell O, you know, we're talking, you know, all sorts of major manufacturing, advertising about it. There's the Jell O show, it's it's huge. So this product is kosher. So some rabbis question this and they say, okay, we want to learn more about the gelatin that's going into Jell O. We want to figure this out. We want to understand more of this panchadach business. So they go to the factory in Chicago, the Wilson factory, which is making kosher gelatin, and they discover something that they surprise. They discover that the way <laughs> gelatin's coming is from pork skins. And and here's an ad. This is this is you know, this is the kind of thing we do as academics is we read trade journals. I love trade journals. This is the meat packing journal. And there, save those skins for gelatin. They mean greater profits for you. Now the imports have stopped. The prices of gelatin skins are up sharply. Post-war America, a lot of mechanization. We all know this. And they figure out a way to have an automatic pig skinner. So you can take it, and you can run your hams through, and it takes the skin off. And then what do you do with this ham? You turn it The skins, the skins. You turn it into gelatin. And it's so much better than bones. Because bones, you've got to boil and boil and boil. It's so much faster. The skins are much cheaper to turn into gelatin. So these rabbis learn that the gelatin that is the main ingredient in jello, besides, of course, sugar, um, it comes from pigs. You know, this Pana-Hanesha's business is allowing Jews to eat gelatin made from pigs. And isn't, you know, isn't that one of the main rules of the Bible, this rule of separation? You're not supposed to eat pigs. So they go, no, 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 no. you can't do this anymore. Abraham Goldstein was right. They don't say that. They don't, never give him credit for it, but they come over to his side. So the decision's reversed. It's reversed again. There's a huge, you know, you can imagine the sugar is like that, about the whole thing. But it, it goes, gelatin is, is, is declared non-kosher. Um, and not just that, the whole concept of chemical transformation being okay is pretty much curtailed. So that you can't do the same thing for other products. You can't take science, which science is great at, and change a product and thereby make it kosher. So. This becomes the basis of a lot of kosher certification. So this is very stringent. That's sort of a technical term. This is kind of a stringent kosher law. But then something very odd happened, something which literally not a single person intended. This stringent turn makes kosher food more popular among non-Jews. And I assure you, the Orthodox rabbis, Abraham Goldstein, they're not thinking about the marketing benefits of kosher food. For them, it's about religion. Um, but what happens is, you know, 1980s, a lot of anxiety about the food system, and some people start doing market research. Some very good market research done in the 80s. Study comes out in 1989, which I've read, which says that of the people who are looking for kosher food, only one in four is an observant Jew. And you know, food companies go, what? Orthodox students go, what? What's going on there? And, and you, know, you know, to some extent, this is a legacy, if you will, of the famous Hebrew National Campaign. We answer to a higher authority. It's also a product of cynicism about government regulation that we can't trust the inspectors. And there's a belief that if you have Orthodox rabbis involved following what's in food, it's going to keep the food companies on their toes. Which is true. That is actually a reasonable belief. And so all sorts of people start looking to kosher certification as a way of understanding more about the contents of their food. Uh, a big group that does that is Muslims, who, of course, are very worried about pork in their food. And they think, well, we can trust the Orthodox rabbis, at least for that, you know to make sure there's no pork in there. People who are lactose intolerant want to make sure there's no milk in their food. And they use, and they use kosher labels for that purpose. And other people just think that it's going to be better and cleaner. So they go for it. So you start developing, really by 2000, a lot of kosher food consumers who are not observant in whatever way. Now this then gets something augmented by something which it takes more of an industrial history person to, to get to, which is what I call the food chain effect. And as Eric mentions I, I think about food chains and the, and, the real, and the impact of the way our food system works. And there's an amazing food chain effect on, on, on kosher food. Uh, You think about it this way, that that if you're a company like Sodexo, and you're serving lots and lots of clients, and even a small number of those clients want kosher food, you're going to want all your food to be kosher. Because you don't want to have two kinds of ranch dressing, two kinds of salad oil, two kinds of olive oil. You want one kind of those kinds of products. It's a lot simpler that way. That way you don't have the problem of giving the wrong one. And if the price is similar, it's even better. You can do the same thing. So as kosher certification comes in, and people start asking for it, back up the food chain, there's all these pressures to make your products kosher so you can distribute them to anybody. And you, can, you could sell them to anybody. So if, especially if you're an ingredient manufacturer, if you're making a food color, it's in your interest to make a kosher. Because there's companies that are making, say, salad dressing. And they might want your food color. And they know they want to sell their salad dressing to Sedexo, And Sedexo is going to want it to be kosher. And so they're not even going to look at your food coloring if your food coloring isn't kosher because of the problem it's going to make. So now they say that about 40% of your products in the supermarket are kosher. But if you go back up towards the ingredient level, towards, towards flavorings, towards colors, and things like that, 70%, 80 90% of those ingredients are kosher. So there's a tremendous ripple effect of this. And of course, once the ingredients become kosher, it's easier for more companies to turn their products kosher, because they can find analog analog products. Now, the way the system works now is with this symbol. You probably have the symbol on many more packages. People mean people probably know about this, but most audiences, you just pick up a glass of a thing of water and you have the U on the package. People don't know what it means. This of course is a symbol of the Orthodox Union. But it's more than that, it's a trademark. It's protected under trademark law. And the key to kosher certification is secular law, protection on a trademark. So if you want to if you want your product declared kosher, the Orthodox Union, okay kosher certification, they have to say we believe it's kosher, and therefore, we allow you to put our trademark on your package. It's a permission process. And if you put your trademark on the pa- their trademark on the package and you don't have the right, they will sue you in court, and you will lose, because trademark law is very, very tough for lots of other reasons, not because they care about this, because they care about all the other products that have trademarks. <laughs> So the key to it is this kind of trademark law. So the fascinating thing to me about this is here you have an enforcement of kosher law that's integrated into manufacturing through civil law, through a trademark system. Now, this is what it actually means. This is, this is, and this kosher certification is not a joke. I mean, this is from the um, Manischewitz factory I was there. But look, Mashkiach was the inspector, inspects all, all the, you know, all everything. And it says here, you can't see it too well. It says, uh, if violation of kosher law can result in immediate dismissal and discrimination. So kosher law, in terms of factory production, becomes enforced by management, company managements that have no real stake, except financially, in kosher law. And I've gone, I talk about this in the book. I went through some factories. It's an inspection systems. It's the way products are placed in the plant. Factories even sequence production in a way to minimize the effects of following kosher law. It's really it's really an extraordinary accomplishment. Um, and so once you do that, once you have production control systems that automatically take care of kosher requirements, and once you have ingredients that are widespread in that area, kosher food becomes integrated into the industrial food system, and it's relatively easy for it, it to spread. Um, now, of course, this all begins with Rabbi Geffen. And ironically, it also relates to the kind of stringent approach towards kosher law that he and Goldstein have. And what's even inter- more interesting, in a way, is that this then provides a model for what's called third-party certification of other pro- products. Uh, this, is Manisch- this is, again, Manischewitz. Uh, and you'll see this, non-GMO project verified, so on and so forth. And then over here, the sardine, you can see the label. Now, this is this is no PA. This is a, a certain thing to get people worried about about the packaging, gluten free, <laughs> wild caught, certified sustainable, non-GMO, <laughs> and there really are sardines in there. Believe it. <laughs> and you're actually you're signed up because people like them. It's a it's a little over the top, but but this is all through our foods So people have, uh, people who have particular concerns about food have followed the kosher example of third party certification and using trademark, this is a trademark, this GMO product is a trademark that that agency allows to be placed in their packages. And kosher food companies, you know, like Manischewitz, it's not the only one, Ketum Foods does this, have jumped on this because they're all set up to incorporate these other kinds of certifications into their process. Um, and GMO is a big deal. It's not that easy to do sometimes in uh, in production because there's so many GMO products through there. Um, and believe me, this is not because the code the, the, the the, the kosher food companies necessarily believe that this is the right thing to do. They do believe the kosher is, but they think, well, this is about marketing. This is about reaching consumers who care about that, and we can move this in that, in that direction. So the kosher certification is not just about the expansion of kosher food. This is the amazing thing. It's a model for non-other kinds of dietary preferences to be enforced through this third process, this third um, party process. Now, I've got to bring it back to Stu for a minute, though. Now, you might remember where I started. Stu said, what happened to kosher meat? And if you imagine that Stu is here now, he's probably thinking to himself, Roger, you're ducking my question. What about kosher meat? This is a great, wonderful story, positive story, Jewish success. But what about kosher meat? Well, Stu, that's not a good story. Um, Kosher meat is the opposite story, as a matter of fact. Kosher meat is an example of what happens when when kosher law has requirements that make it hard for a product to fit into the into the industrial food system. 1920s, I know from my research that k- kosher slaughtering, uh, about, about a here, let me put it this way, that about 25% of the cattle slaughtered in America, 1920s, are killed using kosher methods. 25%. By well, the 1980s, it's down to about 5%. Today I think it's about 1%. And it's more complicated than that, of course, but those numbers just kind of tell a lot of the story. Kosher slaughtering, kosher meat is marginal to the American food system. And the wonderful contrast is the way at the same time processed kosher food becomes so widely available. Now, this is not to say you can't get kosher meat. You can get it around here at Trader Joe's There's some other places you could do it. It's not unfindable. You can, you, can, you, can, you can get to it, but it's hard to do so. And as a product, it's marginal. Um, so this is a story also I have to tell in my book. This is not a pretty story. And maybe this is why I could write a book about kosher, about meat in America and just kind of hop over the kosher meat because it wasn't, it wasn't there. Now, to tell this story, I had to use some oral history, which Eric was nice enough to mention. Uh, and I found this guy named Harry Castle, who is now, let's see, he's 96. His wife is, you know, his young wife is 88. They... they um, they, uh, I tried talking to him last year. They had just come back from Paris. So they, he's, still, he's wonderful, he's amazing. Uh, and Harry Castle was the leading kosher meat wholesaler in the United States, 1950s, 60s, 70s. You never heard of him, but a very important guy, a uh, wonderful guy. Um, now, I tell the story with really you, well, Harry comes into kosher meat as it's dramatically changing. Early 20th century most Jews got kosher meat from slaughterhouses that were right in the cities where they lived. Uh, and Hagley actually has a lot of documentation, which Chris Baer got for me, about how the Pennsylvania Railroad, you didn't know this about the Pensy, made a lot of money shipping cattle to New York City and, and the East Coast to be killed in the plants undergoing kosher methods. And so a lot of these plants were in the cities. Now, of course, what happens in New York in the 1940s is other things happen that make that land a lot more worthwhile. Like the UN comes along, and all the kosher plants on the east East, East side are knocked down for the UN, because frankly, there's a little more money there. Kosher plants on the west side kind of get hemmed in by a lot of development that's there. So by the time Harry's getting involved in the business, there's no kosher meat being slaughtered in New York City. This kosher meat is coming from other places. Now here's the dilemma, though, this creates. Kosher meat is this very peculiar thing. Because when you kill an animal and you, and you divide the meat, you have non-kosher and kosher meat coming out of the same animal, especially in the Ashkenazi tradition. Where in the Ashkenazi tradition, the hindquarters is not considered suitable to be turned kosher, to be processed in a manner which is kosher. Uh, I can explain that. It's about cleaning that koshering the animal to remove the blood. But the hindquarters is not put into the kosher tract. So if you're these plants in New York City, 1920s, the four quarters, yeah, you kill the animal kosher, you sell the kosher four quarters to the Jews. What do you do with the hindquarters? Well, New York City, fortunately, is full of a lot of nice restaurants. And like serving filet mignon, porterhouse steaks, and all sorts of really nice things that, for some reason, the Jews won't want to eat, fine. You know, Delmonico's and all the houses. So there's lots of, lots of room in New York City, 1920s, 30s, 40s, to sell it on kosher half. But then, when kosher meat production goes to Omaha, and it does go to Omaha, what do you do with the non-kosher parts? I mean, Omaha is not a bad city, believe me, but they just don't have New York's restaurants. Sorry. What are you going to do with the non-kosher half? What do you do with the non-kosher half of the animal? Harry Castle figured this out. Harry Castle is a meat distributor. He's an innovator uh, in in technology, and and he creates a distribution system around the country to sell really, really good meat that was slaughtered to the kosher method becomes out of the hindquarters. So what Harry does is he works with, with the big meat packing companies and says, I'll take the non-kosher meat, I'll take the kosher meat, and I can divide it into two different streams so you can sell both parts of the animal. And this is his warehouse in Brooklyn, and here we have literally kosher on one side, non-kosher on the other. <laughs> and that's what he does. And he knows how to move these streams of meat in other directions. Uh, and he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant at it. Um, you know, by the 70s, What's he, what's he handling? Half a million pounds um, a week in New York City. Half a million pounds a week of meat in New York City, coming to the city, being distributed out. Um, now, this works through the 1970s. Uh, and this is, this is the only reason I can, I can trace this is through, by talking to Harry Castle and some really stuff, interest, difficult to, to use stuff in the Orthodox Union uh, records. Um, and he has a lot of meat companies in the 70s who are doing kosher meat but the meat industry goes down. In the late 70s, 1980s, you may or may not know how all the companies have went bankrupt. Harry sees it coming and he says, I'm done. And he sells his plan, he sells out, he makes lots of cash, and now he's even wealthier because he threw it in the stock market, but that's a different story. Um, so he gets out of it, and all these companies lose their distributor. Then these companies go bankrupt, and it's chaos in the meat industry. So by 83, by 84, Kosher meat production is no longer taking place in the mainstream meatpacking industry. It's quiet. No one writes articles about it, but I assure you, it's gone. These companies are no longer doing it. Um, And what happens are some shortages that are addressed by Orthodox Jews, founding meat companies to try to take their place. The most well-known is a company called AgriProcessors, operated by Aaron and his son, Shalman Rubashkin in Postville, Iowa, that purchase a closed plant and make a kosher plant. And they, of course some of you probably know they get themselves into a lot of trouble, not so many years ago. But the origins of that initiative by them is they see they see an opportunity. They see the kosher meat's not being produced. It's, it's here, it's there, it's hard to find, and they move in and they figure out a way um, to do that. Um, so um, this is a dilemma of kosher meat. Now the problem that you have with kosher meat is actually very simple to explain. I don't have to get gory and Discussed you and all that. You know, kosher meat, there's all these rules about what has to be done. You've got to have a shocket who kills it in a certain way. There's a bodic, an inspector who inspects it. There's certain rules about it. And it's slow. It's slow for all these reasons. The biggest problem is that the animal has to be conscious at the time that the shocket cuts the throat. And then the animal has to bleed for before it can move into production. Sorry about that. Sorry. Apologies. But that means that kosher plants can't match the speed of non-kosher plants. They can, not by, by a factor of four or five. Non-kosher plants are four, for times, four or five times more productive than kosher plants. So the big meat packing companies say, why should we do kosher meat? This is crazy. And if we kill kosher, we've still got to sell the hindquarters to the, to, to the non-Jews, because the Jews won't eat it. You know, then there's all these animals that are ruled non-kosher because there's problems with the lungs. And you can imagine how meat companies feel about that. So we're spending all so meat companies, you can think of the logic. So you've got to spend all this money on slower production, and only a small portion of what we produce kosher can actually be sold as kosher. You're crazy. So they don't produce it. They have no interest in producing it. So what happens is that kosher meat production is pushed outside of the mainstream food industry. And that's the way it remains today. There are few companies that are producing it that largely are Jewish owned orthodox companies. That's why you still have kosher meat around, it's still being being produced. But it's not part of the mainstream industry. So, this is kind of the not so great part of, uh, you know, you know, of, of the story. Um, and whether or not you eat meat or not, it still, I think, is, a, is something to, to note that kosher meat has not had the success of, of industrial food. All right, let me bring this to a close. And now that I answered Stu's question, I'll answer. This is Stu. This is uh, Passover, um, 2005, um, April. This is nine months before Stu died. Uh, and you know how long ago it was because I have black hair in that in that picture, <laughs> and I don't blame the book for turning my hair white. We'll uh, do that. Um, you didn't. No, sorry, I no, didn't mean that. Um, all right. Now Stu dies before the whole business with Agri-Processor gets very very dicey and bad, but you know he was Stu like all his like his mother like his grand like his parents great celebrator of the advance of Jews in 20th century America, and I think this is something that all Jews share, is a sense that, you know, the world really opened up for us uh, after World War II. A lot of opportunity for Jews, a lot of success. Um, but for Jews of his generation and, you know, maybe some of ours too, you know, the success always came with a certain wariness. You know, we remember the Holocaust. You know, we know, it could, we know some of Jewish history. And Stu always kept an eye over his shoulder, as you might say. Um, and he told me once a story about his military service. He he was in the mil- He was drafted after World War II. Uh, he never did any combat. I mean, he was he was fine. He was stateside through it. But he was an enlisted man. And I asked him this interview: um, Did you ever experience any problems because you were Jewish? And there was a long pause. And I actually thought the interview was over. And then he starts talking quietly. And he says, you know. I was the only Jewish enlisted man in the company, and I felt it. I'm quoting him. Um, and he told me a few stories. One that was most powerful is he explained that most people in the company called each other by their first name. But quote, I was always called Schwartz. In other words, he was always the Jew in his company. He didn't wear a yarmulke. He didn't ask for kosher food. He didn't ask for time off you know, on the Sabbath. None of that. His last name was Schwartz. And that was enough for him to be known as somehow different, somehow on the outside. And these memories stung. I mean, I, that's why he paused, and you could hear in his voice to feel that somehow, because he was Jewish, he was uh, he was stigmatized. Um, and maybe you know, it was that memory, maybe other memories, that stimulated his sort of somewhat angry question to my mother, such a long, long time ago. Why did Roger write about kosher meat? So I want to thank Stu for putting me on to this book and the voyage it's taken me. helped me understand the advance of kosher food over the last half century. It's a remarkable story. Uh, Really, the expansion of opportunity democracy that this meant, that observant Jews could find the food they wanted in supermarkets. But also for these thoughts about remaining wary, never assuming that the barriers to being Jewish will never come back. Thank you.